We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome fourth-generation South Dakota rancher Kelsey Deschanel-Scott. Kelsey is the director of programs for the Intertribal Agriculture Council, which seeks to build and restore indigenous foodways in Native American communities. She's also a co-owner of DX Beef, a direct-to-consumer grass-fed beef operation on the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation. That's where she grew up, and that's where she ranches today with her family. She's passionate about soil health, land stewardship, education, and bringing nutritious food to her community. She received a bachelor's in rangeland management from South Dakota State University, a master's of agriculture in integrated resource management from Colorado State University, and she's currently closing in on a doctorate in education at North Central University. Even though she's still only in her 20s, she's emerged as an important voice within the regenerative farming movement. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, we join investigative journalist Carrie Gillum for a monthly segment we call Industrial Ag Watch. On this edition of Industrial Ag Watch, we check in with Carrie Gillum to see what stories are emerging within our industrialized food system. Carrie is the author of the 2017 book Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Whitewash won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists, as well as other literary awards. You can also go back and listen to a 2019 podcast we did with Carrie about that groundbreaking book. Her new book is out, and it's called The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. You can find it at the AcresUSA.com bookstore. Carrie works as a reporter and director of research for U.S. Right to Know. Her work frequently appears in The Guardian, and she has more than 30 years of experience covering food and agricultural policies and practices. She also serves on the Freedom of Information Task Force for the Society of Environmental Journalists. Here's our latest conversation with Carrie Gillum. Welcome back, Carrie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Last time we talked, you filled us in on a developing story at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. It's kind of a complicated array of whistleblowers who've come forward to shine a light on some disturbing practices within the agency. Can you give us a quick summary of what's at issue? Who are these whistleblowers and what are they saying? Yeah, I mean, it just seems like every other, you know, day, another shoe drops, you know, (laughs) I mean, um, there are five really that have been in the news lately, Um, scientists from the EPA who've come out with their names and, and information, four of them specifically from the chemicals division, uh, who have come out with text messages and audio and screenshots of things that have been going on inside and basically what they're saying, and, and they continue to roll out the evidence, is that the EPA in multiple ways is intentionally failing to assess the accurate risk that we face, that the public faces from numerous chemicals uh, that companies are pushing into the marketplace or have already pushed into the marketplace. And a lot of these uh, chemicals where they are ignoring the risk, downplaying the assessments, manipulating the exposure uh, models. According to these EPA scientists, a lot of these chemicals can, the the science shows that they can cause cancer or that they uh, can be, you know, neurodevelopmentally damaging to to kids, that they can uh, have reproductive harm. So these are real risks that uh, people face from their environmental exposures. And these are chemicals that we're exposed to in the air or the water or, or through food or through agriculture, you know, farming practices. It's really alarming. And the fact that these people have come forward with names and with, you know, hard evidence, uh, they're pushing for a congressional investigation, you know, talking to the Office of Inspector General. So this is serious stuff. And, you know, we don't really know yet if the Biden administration is taking this seriously and what they're doing about it, if anything. But, you know, stay tuned, right? Because it's, it's really important. One of the whistleblowers is children's health expert, Ruth Etzel. Tell us about her. She testified recently at a public hearing. What did she say? 
Yeah, and Ruth is is really sort of standing on her own, separate from these uh, four EPA scientists who were working with chemicals inside the EPA. Uh, Ruth is a world-renowned children's health expert. She's worked, you know, all over the world and been an expert in CDC and worked in the USDA for a while uh, and worked overseas and then came to the EPA during the Obama administration to really oversee its children's health um, initiative to protect the, the health of children through the EPA. And she became very concerned while she was there um, about lead exposure and lead poisoning and what it was doing to children. uh, Because of course we had the Flint, Michigan issues at that time. Um, So she came forward and was really pushing this this project to to force industry and all of the 17 other government agencies to really crack down on lead and lead exposure and she got pushed back and she saw delay after delay and she made a lot of noise about it. And she basically got kicked out of her job and, and reassigned. So anyway, she filed a whistleblower complaint. She had a hearing uh, earlier in September and we're now waiting uh, to see how the judge rules in, in that case. But it got really ugly. You know, there were allegations of, that she was a racist and a terrible leader. And of course, she's saying all of this was made up and that she's been, you know, there's been efforts to intimidate and harass her because of her, you know, calling for better public protections for kids. So, you know, that's, that's a really dramatic thing that we've been watching closely. So help us understand why there would be pushback for someone like her and in response to what she's saying. Well, you know, there are a lot of different industries, right? I mean, the the engineering and construction and a a whole big segment of our uh, society and economy that would have to maybe do things differently, um, you know, for remediation work. And and if we're really going to be worried about lead, which, uh, you know, we do have some protections in place now, but she really pushed forward a lot of research and science that showed that we need to be doing a lot more. And, um, you know, the pushback was pretty extreme. And some of it came from um, political appointees, actually, that came in during the Trump administration uh, that had some pretty close ties to industry. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, discussion and suspicion there that this was politically motivated attack uh, on her and on her reputation. What these whistleblowers are bringing to light seems so important to public health in the U.S., which is something we all seem very concerned with right now. I'm curious why this is getting overlooked in the mainstream press. I mean, the only sources that I know who are covering this on a regular basis would be U.S. Right to Know, the nonprofit news organization that you work for, The Guardian, who you also write for, and The Intercept. Yeah, you know, and that's hard to explain why mainstream media doesn't want to dive into this. Uh, maybe because the Biden administration, you know, is not uh, moving pretty rapidly on this and is under some criticism. I mean, these EPA whistleblowers are saying that some of this, you know, alleged misconduct and hiding of risk uh, has continued under the Biden administration. And, you know, who knows? Uh, we certainly have seen the New York Times and other mainstream media be loath to criticize the new administration in many circumstances. Yeah. Well, since I have you on the phone, I also wanted to talk about the ongoing Roundup lawsuits. Recently, a senior scientist with Monsanto Bayer testified at one of these trials. And what does she say? Yeah, this was Donna Farmer. And Donna Farmer, anyone who's followed this or known Monsanto or you know, read a lot about this as it heard the name Donna Farmer. She was a very senior scientist at Monsanto for a very long time. I want to say 20, 25 years. Uh, I hope I got that right, Donna. And uh, she has really been, you know, a, a face and a name that's been out there defending glyphosate and Roundup for many years. She was at the EPA scientific advisory panel in 2016, um, defending glyphosate at that time. And, you know, this was this was really interesting to watch her um, testify uh, in this in this lawsuit, in this trial. This is the fourth round of trial uh, to actually be held. You know, the other three were won by the plaintiffs. And this is a an older woman who has non-Hodgkin lymphoma who's filed this lawsuit. But under questioning, you know, Donna kept getting asked questions about, you know, well, 
here were scientific studies showing that Roundup and glyphosate could be genotoxic and genotoxicity is an indicator of carcinogenicity. Weren't you worried? You know, tell us why Monsanto wasn't doing anything, wasn't warning the public, wasn't notifying the EPA that your own consultants was telling you that you should do more tests that it looked like there was evidence of genotoxicity. And it was interesting, especially what we just talked about. Donna Farmer responded to that particular line of questioning that, hey, we gave our studies to the EPA and the EPA said our studies were great. You know, the Monsanto studies that showed there was no reason to be worried about uh, glyphosate or Roundup and EPA gave it a thumbs up, so Monsanto didn't have anything to worry about. And I think that's particularly noteworthy in light yeah. <laughs> of corruption uh, that the whistleblowers are telling us about. It all connects. It all connects. It's it's really been interesting to watch her, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, heated exchanges <laughs> with Donna and the plaintiff's attorney. So what's next in, in this trial? You know, what what can we expect? Well, Donna Farmer, uh, you know, still has more testimony to go as you and I are talking here um, today. And then we have a few more witnesses. And this trial has been the first one uh, that has actually been held by Zoom, the first roundup trial. And it has not gone well uh, at all. Uh, They've had numerous technical problems and the jurors kept people losing their connections and they can't see the people talking and the judge drops off sometimes. And So, you know, for the jurors to actually convene and discuss and come to a decision, I don't know how how long that will take, how easy that will be. Uh, I think I think both sides are, you know, have an easy avenue for appeal, in my layman's opinion, because it certainly has been a hard, hard thing to stay on top of with with all the technical problems. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for keeping us informed. Thanks for asking me. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Okay, Kelsey Scott. I've gotten to know her a little through Acres USA events. She's graciously participated in our Healthy Soil Summit the last two years, and I've just been completely blown away by the level of wisdom, insight, and optimism that she brings to the table. She's just impressive in so many ways. Impressive that she's running a grass-fed beef company with her father. She's working on completing her PhD. She's a national leader in indigenous agriculture. She recently got married. She works tirelessly to help feed her community, and she just celebrated her 28th birthday. And as you'll hear, it all started with a simple pile of dirt. Without further ado, here's my interview with Kelsey Deschanel-Scott. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I was hoping we could begin by having you describe the landscape where you live. What makes the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota culturally and ecologically unique? Yeah, well, I am fortunate enough to get to call um, the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation home. Um, To me, what makes this place unique is not necessarily what it is, but but how it exists. Um, And so I'll get into a little more detail about that. Uh, We we have a predominantly northern mixed grass prairie. Uh, We've got a diverse ecosystem of plant biology as well as soil biology underneath. A lot of um, never broken uh, rangeland that is is still in a fairly natural state. I mean, we don't necessarily have the large 3,000 head and larger bison herds roaming across, but we do have very thoughtful application of grazing cattle herd and some bison herd management across the reservation that kind of continues to reboot the system the way that it evolved to underneath the cloven hooved bison herds. We are right along the 
shoreline of the Missouri River's Lake Oahe Dam, which was a, a man-made dam to generate electrical power down near um, Fort Pier and Pier, South Dakota. And so we have um, access to a pretty large significant water source on the southeastern banks of our operation. Um, we also have you know, some additional watering sources across uh, the landscape that contribute to a better distribution of our grazing management practices across the land and, and really just create that really robust ecosystem that you like to see full of diversity. And beyond that, though, I think what's really unique is the people. We are uh, a tribal nation that over the course of, you know, multiple <laughs> forced assimilation and very, you know, oppressive projects led by the U.S. government, um, we still identify as being a tribal person from um, this nation and we call this landscape and the people that inhabit the landscape and the animals that inhabit the landscape are relatives. And we really try to um, inspire that thought and belief in community and remembering that we are at the heart of this ecosystem. We are a very responsible party in helping to contribute to this unique ecosystem. And that's why I think that it's not just about what it is that's here that makes us unique. It's it's a little bit also about how it is here <laughs> that makes us unique. And what is sort of the socioeconomic situation? I think that's sort of an important component um, to kind of understand the context in which you're doing some of the work that you're doing. So the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation encompasses two counties uh, Dewey and Zeebok County. In one of the more recent national census uh, data collections, it was identified that these two locations or these two counties are among the poorest counties across the United States. In addition to that, we are both counties defined as a United States Department of Agriculture food desert. So we probably meet just about anybody's depiction of what a the middle of nowhere is when it comes to mind for them but the the really unique thing about interacting with the local communities here and the people that call it home is it's it's not just the middle of nowhere it's the middle of vast resources and truly limitless potential for continuing to rebuild and redefine what a more localized food system looks like um, we have seen some tremendous growth in the past couple of years that is accounted for largely with a reclaiming of our resources by tribal producers. You know, historically, as reservations um, and, and land bases have been distributed out, or uh, I mean, I could probably use a little not so nice words um, around that, but for it. Uh, the <laughs> the um, the distribution and allocation of access to reservation resources has been very largely set up to be to the detriment of tribal communities being able to build a sustainable and regenerative economy that can thrive. Quite frankly, it's it's been an exploitive manner that contributes to off-reservation economies, you know, neighboring reservation economies to benefit from the utilization of Indian resources. And within the past couple of decades, um, my reservation in particular has designed and implemented a grazing ordinance that truly promotes the utilization of our tribally owned resources by Native American families. And what that has done is it has uh, really localized the business ownership of our food and ag businesses. Um, it's, it's no longer non-Native families coming onto the reservation and leasing resources and then leaving at the end of the year after they've utilized all of the resources and taking their calf check and putting it in a bank off the reservation. You know, we're, we're talking about identifying pathways to owning a, an agricultural business and existing right here within the economy. Um, a local uh, tribal ventures study indicated that for every $1 that's spent on the reservation, it turns over seven times before it leaves the reservation. So that just goes to show how important it is for you know, inspiring individuals to keep their, their dollars local 
the only ability to do that really come down to shopping local and the few storefronts that existed across the reservation as a result of ongoing efforts of four bands community development financial institution and and other like-minded organizations that know the importance of a vibrant rural economy and um, having established storefront places and contributing to you know offering loans to uh, air quotes riskier clientele to be able to um, start up their businesses in a riskier economic climate uh, we're really starting to see some economic growth here within uh, the reservation boundaries and i really look forward to a future where hopefully my children and my grandchildren don't necessarily uh, feel so inclined to start off their introduction about what the local socioeconomic status is by um, helping the listener to know that we are within a defined food desert and among the two poorest counties in the nation. Well, you mentioned food desert, and, and, and I would like mm-hmm. to kind of understand what that means within this particular context. How many people are within? the reservation and what are the main food sources and what kind of food is available? Yeah. So I believe how a USDA food desert is um, defined, it's lack of access to a vehicle or um, with being within 10 miles of uh, fresh food and produce. Um, So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't any food that exists. It's that there's a reduced accessibility to the food and um, the it might not be nutritionally dense food. Um, so here on Cheyenne River, you know, we have a, a land base of around 3.2 million acres. And across those 3.2 million acres, up until very recently, there were two or three grocery stores. <laughs> so recently the tribe has invested in sea stores, which are kind of like a, a gas station, but with a, a market attached as well. So you can get all of your essentials, whether that be your dairy products to your potatoes, your fresh veggies and fruits, or, you know, your more shelf stable products like your pastas and and your canned goods. Um, And they are placed out there uh, in the communities where they they really are the, the economic hub in the two communities where they've been placed. There isn't any other real storefronts that have an established, um, inflow and outflow of cash and products the way that those two locations do. So I think, you know, we're, we're taking the steps that we need to, to be able to increase access to foods. Um, there's also some really great local food sovereignty efforts like that at the Cheyenne River Youth Project, um, the Yubecha Community Garden, that really try to spearhead a volunteer-based effort to bring people together to talk about the importance of growing our own food and knowing where our food comes from and learning how to process our own food that we may go out and forage using our traditional foraging um, mechanisms and and ways of life. Um, Up until very recently, there wasn't, um, unless you were a farmer or rancher yourself or you were related to one, you didn't really have access to locally sourced beef. Uh, Now the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe owns a slaughter facility Uh, that is off reservation, but it is um, South Dakota state inspected and has the capacity to um, help close the gap, hopefully, to being able to provide locally sourced beef back into the school systems, because right now we're not able to to make that happen. Uh, We also have a processing facility that is prairie pure beef uh, and processing up on um, the east edge of our reservation that is a uh, tribal member-owned processing facility. So we're starting to see all of the infrastructure needs and the business and and market decisions being made in a way that will contribute to access to more nutritionally dense, more locally sourced, and hopefully, ultimately, more regeneratively sourced um, foods for our tribal community members across the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. Right. And, and you are right at the center of these local efforts to bring nutritious food to the community. You and your father work together as business partners, I believe, in a beef operation called DX Beef. Could you tell me more about how that came about and why, why grass-fed beef? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I got into the cattle business, um, it was because I, you know, I always wanted to be a rancher um, and I got 
a really awesome job out of college working for the Intertribal Agriculture Council, uh, first as their youth programs coordinator and then second as their natural resources director. And through this position, I was always learning about USDA resources or additional um, resources that were available that could support our producers and encourage them in secure in reaching their own goals and caring for their land and their family and their communities. And um, I really felt that if you're going to talk the talk about utilizing these programs, you darn sure better be walking the walk because you need to know what it's like to be in the shoes of the producers that you're trying to provide technical assistance for. Um, you can't possibly wholly emphasize and, and, and experience and express the empathy needed to have them make the decisions that they're faced with as you pitch these resources and opportunities to them. So um, I was able to convince my father and my uncle to allow me to buy into the cattle business and to start running on the DX ranch here um, on my home the, or at home for me on the ranch that I was raised on. And um, after selling calves that first year, it, it was probably one of the most disheartening experiences having developed a bond with these, these animals over the course of their entire, you know, from when they were in their mother's womb through the whole winter, keeping them fed all the way through birth and then watching them grow and then weaning them and then shipping them to the sale barn and not knowing where they'd ever be again. It left really this this emptiness, this pit in my stomach. And as I drove home from the sale barn that day, I passed several communities that are faced with food insecurity. And I just thought, man, the system is is really broken. You know, I I know for a fact that I just raised some very quality uh, calves that are going to be beef being processed within the you know eight next eight to twelve month time frame. And I. I don't think any of that's probably going to make its way back into my local community here. And I want to try to fix that. So we started DX beef with the intention of being able to provide a local wholesome food product that um, the consumer felt empowered in purchasing. Uh, and we really followed what the local consumer demand was into the model for being able to provide 100% grass fed beef. Uh, we uh, we actually started off with if an individual or a couple of families wanted a grain finished animal, um, we would coordinate that with them. We would source a local grain from the farmers cooperative nearby here, and we would finish the animal out on grain if that's what the consumer's taste preference wanted. Um, but honestly, we we didn't process too many animals that way. The local consumer demand was for grass fed beef and burger primarily uh, being the cut that they were looking for. And so we really started to build our brand around um, helping consumers to understand even more about the health benefits that are encompassed in a, a grass-fed protein. Um, we got to talk a little bit about, you know, we get to talk with our customers a little bit about the soil microbiome and how the healthier the soil microbiome, the healthier the animal's microbiome is. And they're starting to see research that links a healthy soil microbiome to a healthy gut biome for humans. Um, and, you know, we got to talk about how our animals, when they're being grass finished, they get to... Um, inhabit the landscape similar to how the bison used to, which was a staple in the diet of my people. Um, and we we get to explore conversations around, you know, we've been trained to think that this, you know, 24 ounce steak that's flopping over the edges of our plate is what you need in order for it to be an enjoyable eating experience. But in reality, you want a nutritionally dense product that is um, a little closer to within the recommended serving size of and and you know is a more attainable and achievable through the grass finished carcass um, processing so it's it's been a really unique um transition i would say from being just cow calf producers to then being cow calf uh and doing a little bit of backgrounding and then doing a little bit of um Growing as stock, growing them as stockers, and then getting into processing grass finished carcasses, and really trying to grow that market and establish 
uh, a more informed consumer still, an empowered consumer that decides this is why I want to buy this product and um, hopefully continuing to at least be able to maintain in all of our marketing efforts, the story that we just want to figure out a way to get back to feeding a more food secure community. Um, and this is kind of the path we're taking to do that right now. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hey, this is Sebastian from Barn to Door. For this week's Farmer Spotlight, we have Joe Shermer from Dirty Girl Produce in Santa Cruz County, California. We invited Joe onto our Direct Farm podcast and asked him how he balances selling retail and wholesale. Here's what he had to say. The restaurants are coming back, and they've been coming back in a big way, and it's been great because we've really adjusted our whole system for restaurants putting orders in. When we first moved over to Barn to Door, the big push was that, you know, all the restaurants are closed or about to close and we wanted to do farm boxes. And so we were delivering and picking, and that was just huge and busy. And so it's the same application that does that. There's just a different page for the restaurant wholesale. And so it, as everybody's come back, it's been slow and steady and we've gotten to figure it out. And now that everybody kind of jumped in, it's really, you know, I'm just helping people get on and get logged in and figure out how we're doing things. I mean, we're changing. I used to go in the fall when things would slow down and I'd have this big bundle of <laughs> Oh, invoice receipts and I just start calling people. So, you know, I'm kind of done with that because we're really just having everybody pay for it when they place the order and then they have to place the order within a certain amount of time. It's so much easier to just get people, get a loading, place the order. It automatically goes to our pick and pack lists and it's sorted out and the addresses go into our routing software. It's just so much easier. So it's been really cool to watch everybody come back. We all buy things online anyway. We are, we're already doing this. It's just... Some restaurants are not used to doing this, buying from farm. But when they do, you quickly realize that it's easier. If you want to hear more from Joe or any of our other farmers, you can go to barntodoor.com slash resources or on our direct farm podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. You know, cattle have become the, the central symbol of sort of an ongoing debate about climate change and land use. I kind of I feel like you have a unique perspective on this. I mean, you were mentioning earlier sort of the role that bison played in the landscape that you live in um, and how that was important to sort of cycling nutrients through the system. You know, what is, how do you weigh in on this debate and how do you talk to people about it? I mean, you know, I'm sure this comes up from time to time. People say it's not the cow, it's the how, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I suppose it depends on how much time I, I get to spend trying to visit with the person. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that I always like to try to point out for consumers is that they do a really good job of pitting agriculture against agriculture. Um, you know, and like we continue to talk about the increasing age of farmers and the in unfortunate um, devastating increase, continued increase in, um, you know, farmer suicide. We're seeing a national farmer debt that is, you know, continuing to multiply from one year to the next. Um, so like, it's almost as though there's like this shared empathy toward generally towards farmers and ranchers, but then consumers still are like willing to buy into the marketing around pitting agriculture against agriculture. So I guess the first thing that, and one of the principles that I try to fold into running our business here at DX Beef is I, I very seldom, if ever, um, will you see our, our marketing practice ever try to negate the work of another type of agricultural production style. Um, will definitely shed light on why some operations are in this very vicious cyclical process of production that might be degrading their resources. Um, but that's to call out the fact that, you know, we're experiencing an ag credit system that was designed to make us fail. You know, so it's, it's never to, to belittle or degrade a producer's try or their, their hope to try to um, you know, make something that they can pass off to the next generation. Uh, so I think that that's first and foremost, something that I really believe passionately in is, you know, you won't see me talk poorly about grain finished beef on my website. You will see me promote 
why we've chosen to do strictly grass finished, but I'm not going to use my platform as a vehicle for fueling and adding more propane, I suppose, to that explosion of a fire that kind of happens across the industry. Um, but one of the things that I do like to really talk about is, you know, nature craves disturbance. Um, na nature doesn't know an existence without disturbance. And we're really good at sometimes positively and sometimes negatively impacting <laughs> the disturbance that comes across nature. Uh, but what I think we have to just think about is these ecosystems evolved with animals as a part of the system. So we, we can't remove the animals or we will cause a depletion of the system. And, you know, we, we will see animals uh, that have the ability to um, translocate seeds and, and reboot that seed bed. We, they're able to clear off the brush as they consume last year's vegetative stand so that the new growth can come in. You know, they cycle the carbon in all of the ways that they are. Um, you know, out there serving as little ecosystem magicians, really. Uh, but we we have to just appreciate that the animals were here first. You know, Mother Nature allowed for the animals to exist here first. And she wouldn't have allowed for them to survive if they didn't hold an important role here. You know, and, and we have to think about ourselves as humans a little more as a part of the system as well so that we don't get so caught up in the idea of thinking that we're so superior to the system that we should be able to decide that one animal should or shouldn't be a part of it. And then we should just like totally move away from um, the practice of managing that particular species. Um, you know, we're a biological species too. You know, I always introduce myself typically as a fourth generation cow-calf producer but of the 125th generation to help steward the Great Plains, you know, because my ancestors for as long as, you know, we can date back existence on this continent have developed their civilization around the animals that roamed this prairie. And so we just have to, I think, think about things a little more practically in the sense of well, how did this landscape get to be the way it is to begin with? And animals were a part of it. And so we can't think that there's ever a reality that works out for us where we can just totally eradicate the animals. The last time uh, we spoke, I got the distinct impression that nothing makes you happier than to be outside, whether it's on horse, <laughs> or, you know, whether it's on horseback or digging in the soil. And you told me that you see yourself as a steward of the land first and foremost. And I think you were just sort of touching on this, but I'm kind of curious to know more about how your relationship to the land sort of evolved over time, you know, from when you were very young to, to right now. Yeah. You know, my, uh, <laughs> when I was a little girl, we finally, uh, my parents' house was ready when I was about four years old. And um, where they had dug out the crawl space to pour the concrete foundation, they had had this big pile of dirt outside the house. And back then, for me, that was just dirt. I didn't know the difference between the, the connotation behind dirt and soil. So I called it my dirt pile. And um, that was my playground for several years. Uh, my first best friend, <laughs> that aside from horses. And I think that, you know, having parents that encouraged me to be outside, to be in the elements, um, to, to learn how to have access to, or, you know, to, first of all, providing me access to high quality horses and cattle that it was safe for me to be around, um, but then encourage ways for me to enjoy my time around them. Um, all of that really, truly contributed to me being able to establish a meaningful connection to the land. Um, as I grew up, uh, my family did a really good job of making sure to expose me to um, a, a spiritual upbringing as well as a religious upbringing. And I think the exposure to two totally different types of um, faith and, and way of practicing um, was that what really mm, seemed to be a similarity across both of them as well as other types of coordinated belief systems 
was our connection with the surroundings. You know, what is our role out there on the landscape? And there is just a general mystery in the the way that things unfold when you're out there on the landscape. And, and so I think that it, they inspired curiosity to, to be outside and to crave that connection with the land. Um, you're right. I am happiest when I'm out there on the land. Uh, I, I get really excited when I get to go check heifers or, or cows with my husband. And he typically knows that the only reason I want to go is to dig in the dung and see if there's any dung beetles and to um, try to scratch on the head of a couple of my favorite heifers and to just see what kind of fun plants we can find, you know. But fortunately for me, I I have a full-time job working for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. I get to work from home and I get to support and promote projects that I always tell myself are helping other producers be able to be outside and, and enjoy the landscape. So that, you know, it's it's the full-time job that allows me to be able to step away and enjoy it myself. There aren't enough producers that have the ability to do that, um, to, to go out and enjoy the landscape, um, which I suppose is, is a part of what continues to inspire me to, with my work at the IAC is we need to be able to rebuild the system. We need to first demolish the one that exists because it doesn't really work, mm-hmm. but then rebuild a system that allows producers to be out there and be stewards of the land again and to not have to feel so confined to what the industry has told them agriculture should look like. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, you so you you work as the youth programs coordinator and natural resource director of the Intertribal Agricultural Council. Talk more about the work you're doing there and and how that relates to sort of creating a new generation of farmers in your region. Yeah, absolutely. So the IAC is a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. We have um, member tribes from all across the country as uh, you know, far one direction is Alaska to the other direction being Florida. Um, so we have a, a very national uh, representation and, and group of stakeholders that we aim to serve through our programming. Um, we have a variety of programs at the IAC that are targeted initiatives to propose solutions to the issues that continue to be uh, presenting problems to tribal communities in in achieving food sovereignty. And the multiple roles that I've gotten to hold with the organization at the IAC so far started as a result of my engagement as the youth programs coordinator. So in that position, I coordinated local, regional, and national youth leadership summits, which were basically a three to four day conference for high school and early college aged youth to come together and to really learn about leadership skills, but through the lens of exploring food and agriculture as a career opportunity. So, you know, I like to think that as the youth left the event, they were more equipped to become a leader in their community, and they were more grounded in knowing how important the rebuilding of our food systems and and a, a redesign of an appreciation for our ag systems was in their leadership. Um, many of them have gone on to become young and beginning producers in their community. Others have taken a path more trending towards policy or ag education. Um, you know, some of them are maybe in a, a career that is entirely different, but they know the importance of the food system and where their food comes from as well. Um, you know, we've got some marketing, some youth that now have uh, marketing degrees that are able to support the development and refinement of, of the brands that some of our producers are working to build. They're putting those marketing skills to work in revitalizing that food system. So it's just really good to see that we've got a younger generation that is more widely exposed to the importance of reclaiming that food sovereignty in our tribal communities um, and and doing so as a mechanism for healing many of the traumas that we have been exposed to as indigenous peoples. Uh, My next position was serving as the natural resources director and in that role I was able to 
coordinate cooperative agreements with the Natural Resources Conservation Service that allowed the IAC to really serve as the, the liaison organization that promoted, uh, did extra promotion around programs that would be able to serve Native American farmers and ranchers, but perhaps current outreach efforts weren't quite reaching them or, you know, current outreach efforts um, expected that participants would already have a farm track and farm ID set up at the FSA office. Well, that's not necessarily the case when you're working with young and beginning farmers and ranchers or producers anywhere in Indian country. So, you know, we, we tailored our outreach to more specifically reach the native producers where they were at so that we knew we were gonna be able to help get more producers eligible for the programming at NRCS and beyond. Um, there's other really great uh, conservation-minded programs that are available to producers, but they need to, uh, the organizations that are working to promote them really need the support and the shared trust that we're able to share with them that our producers and our stakeholders have put into uh, the IAC and whatever it is that we promote. Uh, currently now, I serve as the director of programs. So I get to identify ways that we can create these efficiencies within our programs to more effectively serve the producers that we have out there across the landscape. And I get to kind of cross reference the needs across our multiple programs from our technical assistance network to our American Indian Foods program, to our natural resources department, you know, and, and by working with each of those programs, I can really have my finger on the pulse of what is needed in further developing and expanding the work of the IAC. Um, and we continue to diversify our portfolio of work and, and grow out our programming to meet the needs of tribal producers and tribal governments that are working to uh, reboot their efforts towards food sovereignty and rebuilding their ecosystems back to a more regenerative landscape. Right. And, and you're in your 20s, correct? Today is actually my birthday <laughs> and I am well, 28 today. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to underscore that for listeners that, you know, you've, you've accomplished all these things and taken on these major leadership roles and you are not yet out of your twenties. So, uh, which, which, which sort of leads me into my next question, which is, you know, you gave a student address at the commencement ceremony at South Dakota state university. And and first, I'm wondering, you know, what that experience was like and what you said and, <laughs> and how that came about. But I, I'd also like to hear more about the educational journey you've taken. I mean, you went from a graduating class of 19 to pursuing advanced mm -hmm. degrees and taking on these leadership roles, some of which you just mentioned. Um, but start start with the commencement ceremony. I think that was just such, such an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. So um, part of that story that not very many people probably know is um, I was on the fence of if I was going to graduate in 2015 or if I wanted to do a victory lap senior year <laughs> and mm -hmm. finish up, um, take one of my minors in ag economics. And I was, you know, a couple more semesters away from rounding that out to being a double major, one one degree in range science and one degree in ag economics. But I, I didn't, I guess, quite openly communicate that to the mentors and professors that I um, had developed really good relationships with. And one of them, Bradley Blaha, who was the Ag Bio Ambassador um, Director <clears throat> and worked in the College of Ag and Biosciences, he nominated me to give the commencement address, which is something that only a graduating senior can do. Um, and so I got the call that I was nominated and I can submit a application. And I was like, well, geez, okay, maybe this is the universe's sign that it is time for me to move on. So I submitted a draft writing sample um, and I got invited back to the interview round. So then I went in and interviewed and I got the call um, in early April that I was identified to 
give the commencement address. Um, and shortly after that, I got correspondence from, at the time, Dean Barry Dunn, who was the Dean of the College of Egg and Biosciences. He's now the president of the university. Um, first Native American president of a land grant institution, I actually believe. And he was mentioning to me that he was pretty sure I was the first Native American student to be able to give the commencement address. And that was like a surreal honor. I had no possible idea that I was, you know, going to be able to bear uh, when I decided to take the universe's sign and submit an application to give the commencement address. So it, it was a really unique experience for me to consider, you know, hey, you've spent four years here at this institution and um, you've convinced at least one professor that nominated you and then several others that were on the selection committee that you have a message that's powerful and can inspire those in your graduating class and, and hopefully beyond, hopefully those that are there listening and supporting in the stands as well. And um, it, it was a, a good send off, I would say, <laughs> into the next phase of my life. Um, it, I always tried to look at, you know, moving to college and then preparing for moving to the next phase after college. I, I always wanted to be excited for what's to come. I didn't ever want to feel like I hadn't adequately experienced that phase enough in order to be, you know, be ready to move on. And um, that send off in me being able to give the commencement address, I think is, was really just the, you know, the cherry on top, so to speak, for mm -hmm. helping me to see that I, I had done good so far. And, but that I wasn't done yet. Like I, I really needed to now I was entering into the real world and I had the potential for hopefully making some real impact and I needed to, to stick, stick with it and keep busy. <laughs> um, so after graduating from South Dakota State University, I did move home. Um, it was, I, I missed home. Um, I had a brother who was eight years younger than me. So um, he was just entering into uh, high school. So he was going to be um, having a lot of sporting events. And then I had a younger sister who's 16 years younger than me. So she was just fun getting into the elementary age and she really missed her sissy when I was gone at college. And so the, um, the pull to come home was really strong and I was able to relocate home and do an online master's degree through Colorado State University, which had a emphasis um, in integrated resource management. It was a master's of agriculture. Um, and I actually was able to do, instead of doing a thesis, I was able to do a capstone project, which gave me some really unique experiences. One of them, I got to go intern with Kurt and Tammy Pate Stockmanship for a couple of years. Um, they're, they're pretty worldly renowned for their cattle handling and sheep handling and horsemanship handling demonstrations. Uh, and I got to learn from them uh, for a couple of weeks as my internship closed out my uh, master's degree. And then my capstone project was actually building out the business plan for DXB. So it, both of those experiences, both college and then my master's degree, I feel like were very influential in who they helped to connect me with and who they exposed me to um you know ever all of those people that i've been exposed to have inspired me to identify what my niche is in this space and um figuring out how to contribute to uh, making the system better and easier to access for those to come after me i have to say though that um there's nothing like the the ability to learn from nature I, I continue to have nature teach me some phenomenal lessons that um, you just don't quite gain from a textbook or even from a, a professor's speech. And, and so I'm a really, really big believer in the need to, you know, you need to get out there and get your boots dirty. Like you need to work a day in the life of the producers. You need to, um, you can't be developing and designing the policy if you've never stepped foot onto a ranch. And if you've never walked through um, a school system that, you know, only serves food off of the Cisco truck and it's the only meal that the kids get, 
You know, like you, you can't be trying to influence food and nutrition service <laughs> policy if you haven't actually been into those institutions. So I try to always figure out ways in my current role at the IEC to, to better depict those real world scenarios for those individuals that I get to work with that are on the policy side of things or who are influencing um, significant um, policy implementation and and um, just remembering that it's so important to stay grounded and to to get back out there and to get your boots dirty to remember what producers are going through so that you can do a better job at relaying their reality to those that aren't quite so fortunate in being able to get their own boots dirty. Yeah, that, well, that reminds me of a, a quote that I was reading from you in a, in a previous interview that you did. Um, you know, you you were just you just got finished, you know, talking about sort of your institutional education and sort of, you know, the education you've received from nature. But there's this quote, and you said, I think that there's a lot to be learned from indigenous systems. And there's a lot of potential that could be tapped into if we had more allies willing to learn from indigenous systems and production practices. Our human resources and the resiliency that exists and the genetic potential of our people should be leveraged. I'd love it if you could expand mm -hmm. on that. What, what do farmers have to learn from indigenous systems and practices? So I think that it's it's really important to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of conversation around like historical trauma and what that causes for a population. And I just want to point out that that is science based like that. That's not emotional based or, or a, a story that is, you know, only felt, which neither of those should be <laughs> belittled either. Um, that's room enough to appreciate that it's a reality. But there's science now that connects when one um, generation is exposed to a certain level of stress, the DNA telomeres begin to shorten in their offspring. And that happens again with every continued exposure to stress that the generation receives. Their, their generation has shortened telomeres within their DNA, which can contribute to all of the you know, systemic health issues that we know and we experience to exist within poverty. You know, it's it's connected to the continuation of, of trauma being inflicted upon demographics. The other thing, though, it, that I'm really excited to see there's more of a dialogue shifting towards is the genetic resiliency that exists among these populations as well. Because the, for for many demographics, the types of trauma and prolonged exposure to stress that they've experienced would be enough to eradicate some species. Um, but we, we are still here. We still have indigenous communities that when every chance is presented to them are inspired to try to thrive. They are still inspired to get out and to gather timpsila, which is one of our traditionally foraged foods here on Cheyenne River. Um, you know, we're, we're still inspired to tell our stories and to try to remember and speak our language. And so I think that being able to carry forward that resilient desire to pass it on, to keep it alive, is something that should be valued in a way that um, is is truly undervalued or probably not even known about or realized in, in most households. And we have to, in order to truly appreciate um, what Indigenous communities have to offer society, we have to get real about what has happened to Indigenous communities. How have they been treated? How have we been oppressed and what truly vicious and cruel things have happened to our communities? And it, it's not because, you know, indigenous communities want to, you know, carry this, carry out this vendetta and want to get even. No, it's, it's that we have to know where we've been so that we don't keep sliding back that direction. We, we, you have to know an accurate accounting of history in order to truly try to empathize with where some of these communities are coming from. And, and from there then, once we've established a true understanding for all of the traumas that our indigenous communities have been exposed to, I think we'll probably naturally see a lot of, of uh, non-indigenous communities 
want to learn from, well, geez, how the heck do you guys still have a grocery store if you've been removed from your food systems generation after generation and then forced to assimilate to a diet that is designed to give you, you know, prolonged uh, healthcare issues, you know, but you guys still are able to, to function in this world, you know, so we, we try to um, always explore conversations around why do we believe our producers are among the most resilient and we can connect that back to the generations of you know lacking uh, stories that don't really get told about our real history but what we can also do is is we can correlate to correlate it building forward to the potential impact that our producers can have in reassuming the role of being an indigenous land steward. You know, they're, they're no longer just a cattle rancher, they're an indigenous cattle rancher. And um, empowering them to share their stories and, and share ways that they've found their cultural teachings show up and surface in their relationship with the landscape. You know, um, I, I find it really unique. Uh, I, I didn't realize it was unique until I got to be traveling around with Kurt Pate and experiencing other people handling their cattle, you know, but like when my dad is, you know, pushing a cow out the gate or, you know, trying to sort her, or maybe she's in the chute because we need a doctor on her or something, you know, he, he says, easy sister, easy sister. I mean, he, he talks to her, as though she's a relative. And to me, I, I just, you know, you just, I thought that was normal. Right. <laughs> um, but it's not, you know, um, the, there's not usually that level of empathy that is shared and imparted on a human being's encounter with a livestock animal. And I think that, you know, that right there is a perfect depiction of what being an indigenous cattle rancher means is, is to, really have that connection with your four-legged relatives and it doesn't have to be one size fits all this is what indigenous agriculture looks like um, and it's definitely not going to be the indigenous agriculture that happened on this continent you know pre-colonization um, for one the resource base is vastly different than it was prior to 1492 um, but for two our ways as indigenous peoples evolved at one time my people used to hunt rabbits and that was our main protein source. And then we figured out how to get access to deer. And then we, the horse was introduced and we were able to ride up alongside of a bison with our new bows and arrows. And I mean, we learned and evolved and developed tools and designed mechanisms for harvesting our foods as the patterns of the seasons shifted, as access to resources, um, altered, you know, so it's only fair to say that if our food systems hadn't been disrupted, we eventually would have continued to evolve our food systems to look uh, some level of blending probably between the old food ways and the present day food ways, you know, I don't know that we probably would have ever got to where we thought we needed to genetically modify seeds to be Roundup ready, but we, we definitely, you know, we were seed keepers. We, we maintained varieties of seed from the most resilient and robust plants and, and we bred them. And so we had a way of practicing our culture in our, our production methods. And I think that that's really what could be learned um, in trying to tap into more of that indigenous land stewardship and knowledge. Well, I'm wondering what's the future you imagine for your community in the land you serve? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, one of the things that um, we've been reflecting upon here on the DX ranch is identifying ways to stack more enterprises and, and vertically integrate and better appreciate and quantify the value of different components within the system that we currently get to manage that we maybe haven't yet done. Um, so just really continuing to refine uh, the efficiencies within our current land base. And I'm hoping that by doing that, we can identify vehicles for similar demonstration for other producers. You know. I mentioned that our reservation encompasses 3.2 million acres. 
Um, but with a, a tribal member base of around 14,000 people, that's that's not enough land for everybody to want to be involved in agriculture in the context of what the industry of agriculture has told us we should exist within. So I, I think that we need to really redefine what it looks like to stacking family enterprises um, on the land base. And, you know, we don't have any beekeepers really here on Cheyenne River. I mean, there's there's one or two that I know of, but there's 3.2 million acres. You know, we could, we could have very successful honeybee production operations across all of the beef range unit operations that already exist, you know, and we don't really have much for locally sourced poultry. Um, there's, there's no pork that exists. I mean, so there's, there's ways to diversify these operations in a way that, you know, would be able to continue to build and inspire that regrowth that happens after those natural disturbances in nature. And I think it would contribute to a more harmonious food system here on Cheyenne River. And really that's, that's what I look forward to is just continuing to chip away at the the iceberg of food insecurity that we have here. And, you know, eventually we'll be able to get that war down and we'll be able to have uh, healthier and more connected communities. Well, Kelsey, thanks for joining us today and have a happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to, to join you. There you have it. For more information about Kelsey, visit dxbeef.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us on acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. I also want to point you toward our online bookstore at acresusa.com. Acres USA is the premier North American publisher on production scale, organic, and sustainable farming. For over five decades, we've helped farmers, ranchers, and market gardeners grow food organically, sustainably, and without harmful toxic chemistry. Use the coupon code SEPTEMBERPOD, that's S-E-P-T-E-M-B-E-R-P-O-D, for 10% off on all titles. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.